Amazon has been running into some bad PR, although they say it's just uh, working the way it says on the tin with their ring doorbell service. <laughs> I take it you don't agree. Nick, well, I was going to ask you, tell me about what Gizmodo's been reporting about uh, data leakage via the ring service. So there's actually two completely different problems. First is that the API for ring cameras allows you to map exactly where all of them are. And then there are the hackers who are breaking into the ring cameras for fun, literally. They think it's humorous to break into the camera and then speak stuff through the speaker on the camera. Truth be told, they should start actually looking at protecting this better. So Amazon's able to say, legally, we have no obligation. You did read the 27-page software license agreement, and you agreed to it all. Have a nice day. But it really is, to my mind, incompetence on their part. They should have been doing a much better job of preventing these attacks in the first place. Welcome to episode 293 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views expressed here today do not reflect those of our firms, clients, uh, institutions, families, uh, spouses, or pets. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker. And uh, as a special bonus in the holiday season, you will not have me as the host of today's program. Uh, I've got to leave town uh, and and uh, my colleague Maury Schenk is taking over uh, while I'm uh, enjoying the strike in Paris. Uh, if you need a weekly fix of Stuart Baker, though, uh, tune in uh, later this week. We're going to do a uh, deep dive on the inspector general's report on the errors that characterized the FISA and other investigatory steps uh, relating to uh, uh, the uh, alleged Russian collusion with the Trump campaign. Uh, so we'll be doing that uh, in episode 294 coming up later this week. On today's episode, we've got Nate Jones, uh, co-founder of Culprit Partners and formerly with the National Security Council, uh, Nick Weaver, uh, one of our favorites, a senior researcher and and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. And uh, Maury Schenk will be the host. Uh, he's an advisor to Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. Take it away, Maury. Okay. Thank you, Stuart. Well, uh, Stuart in absentia, I'm pretty pleased that I've been asked for the first time to host the CyberLaw podcast after uh, a couple of times doing the interview. I think maybe Stuart has gotten more comfortable with allowing a European to do it after Boris uh, Johnson's election victory, since I'm not quite European anymore now, or soon won't be. Uh, so I do sit outside the United States, and we'll take a pretty international perspective today, starting with China. So uh, at the end of last week, it's been announced that the Trump administration is uh, inclined to approve a phase one trade deal with China. Uh, the administration called it historic. Some others have suggested it's more limited and not sure where it's going to go. But whatever happens, it's clear that there is still a lot to play for with China. Uh, a lot of tech issues that have been called up by these uh, trade disputes. So uh, about a week ago, the Chinese government announced that it's going to order government offices and public institutions to remove foreign computer equipment and software within three years. Nate, you've been looking at that. 
Yeah. Um, as you said, they've been ordered to remove all hardware and software that's not domestically produced. They have three years to do it. Um, this is the first time they've imposed such a specific limitation. Uh, but, you know, reading between the lines on past practices, it's been relatively clear that this has been uh, a direction that China has been headed in for quite some time. You know, one of the the most interesting things about this, in my view, is is this looming question of the extent to which they'll actually be able to accomplish this. There are still certain areas from from chips, which I think we'll talk about in a couple minutes, to operating systems where uh, they're still uh, heavily dependent on U.S. producers. So there are components of hardware, and there are there are um, certain types of of software that they're still dependent on. They don't have clear domestic alternatives to at this point, and so um, whether they're able to to muster up those kinds of alternatives in the next three years and, and fully replace them is, is I think, still an open question. You know, it, it reminds me of what, uh, what the Russians have been trying to do with isolating the Russian Internet. You know, it's a very difficult problem. It's not quite clear uh, what the choke points are going to be, but they'll move ahead and see where they are. Uh, I assume the same thing's going to happen in China and, uh, you know, Overall, there's going to be a decrease in likely in buying uh, things from U.S. suppliers. Yeah, I think that's that's um, certainly true, Maury. The and I think this is a good segue to the arm China conversation because I think China, uh, on some level, is is well aware of some of the domestic limitations it has technologically. Um, uh, back in 2017, for example, they pressured Microsoft to develop a, a custom version of Windows for Chinese uh, government users. And it allowed China to plug in their own crypto. It allowed uh, the Chinese government to limit the telemetry that was being sent back to Microsoft and some things like that. And so I think that China is aware of, of some of its own limitations and where it's not able to deploy things um, domestically to, to supplant those foreign suppliers. It's using other means to, to get out of those foreign suppliers what it wants on security or, or um, economic uh, licenses and things like that. And, and we're seeing this um, with ARM, which is, is now ARM China is a, a, a fully Chinese company at this point. And they've uh, reportedly developed um, chips that will, will run state-approved crypto. Uh, I know Nick has some thoughts on this, but this is, uh, in my view, another area where China is, is pushing to become independent. They're pushing to, to accomplish um, certain ends on the technological front. Um, but they've historically been unable to develop high-quality chips domestically. And this seems like a way that they've they've tried to sever off um, uh, part of part of ARM, uh, maintain its access to its its technological know-how, uh, and then use its foothold in China uh, to subject them to to laws and regulations that uh, accomplish China's ends here. And uh, I don't know if, if Nick has I know Nick has something to add to that. Uh, so. I'll, I'll defer to him. So two things that strike me. First of all, 
The cryptography part is less important because if it's crypto systems that the Chinese government will use for their own communications, it's probably good because there's limited opportunities for shenanigans when you want to keep your own stuff secure. If, however, it's only for use by others in China, well, I think the our friends at Fort Meade are going to thank the Chinese for making their systems more vulnerable. Oh, you really think so? Well, it's the thing is, is if you are doing sabotage, it's really hard to do, sabotage a crypto system in a public key manner. That is, sabotage the crypto system in such a way that there is a separate secret that you need to be able to break it. Dual EC is about the only one that comes to mind, and that's what the NSA did. And it would be really hard to repeat that. If they did, that would be quite an impressive achievement. And so as a consequence, most other sabotage are limited to choices where if you just know the sabotage is there, you can probably figure out how to access it yourself. So um, that's the problem with cryptographic sabotage. Things like dual EC where if you know the back doors there, you still can't get in is few and far between. You know, it's clear this this battle is going to play out in a really complex technical way because the trust has really, I think, has been broken for a number of years by this latest round of trade disputes. And the Chinese have made huge strides in a lot of areas. Uh, and it's probably going to, certainly they're going to keep pushing in this direction. And it's going to be interesting to see how these issues play out. The other thing that strikes me as interesting is how much IP does Arm China now have license to as a independent Chinese company and therefore away from U.S. sanctions for things like CTE. So this might very well be a keystone effort on China's part to truly divorce their supply chain from U.S. sanctions, that there's Good mid-high-end processor. It looks like they've now bought one. Um, there's high-end fab, and there's DRAM, which they're currently in the process of stealing, and there's a good FPGA design. Um, and those are the keystone hardware that they're trying to get internally. There's no question that China wants to go independent from the United States on this stuff, and uh... We'll keep watching what happens. The the, uh, the security vulnerabilities that we may see in future Chinese chips, well, it's not only the Chinese that have that problem. Turning to what I'll call the Department of Hacking, researchers around the world have shown that Intel chips are subject to a, another significant class of attacks relating to their power supplies, an attack that's being called Plundervolt. Nick, can you say a few words about that? Okay, this is just totally amusing for us hardcore hardware geeks. So what it is, is Intel has been trying to do what is really the hardest problem in computer security. I hand you a chip. I hand you a program that you cannot see that will run on your computer and produce results. And in that process, you are not supposed to find out anything about that secret running program. Um, this is generally counter to the number one rule of if you put the computer in your adversary's hands, it's now your adversary's computer. 
And so Intel has been doing this enclave stuff that's designed to allow them to do this very hard task. Unfortunately, the problem is, is that in the real world, it gets really, really complicated. So Plundervolt, which is on track for best hack uh, icon of the year, is a trick where what you do is there was undocumented Intel hardware registers that would allow you to up and down the voltage to the point where it would cause errors in the chip. So what you would do is you would start one of these private computations, then twiddle the voltage up and down to cause targeted errors, which would then reveal information about the computation you weren't supposed to. Are we going to keep seeing more and more of these Intel hacks? You know, there's the the, the big ones we heard about la- you know earlier in the year. Are we going to find more and more ways that people are going to guess computation on Intel chips? Well, it's different and the same. So this is Intel trying to do a much harder problem. And they actually have a patch for it now because, well, this was an undocumented feature in the processors. Well, remove that feature. And so they now have a software patch that uh, eliminates this. Basically, the processor disables these internal internal features. This is not as big a deal as this, uh, what was it called, Spectre and the other one? It's not as big a deal as Spectre and Meltdown, but in some ways it is. So Spectre and Meltdown actually have architectural fixes in the long run that just simply make computers run a bit slower. This is trying to do a problem that is much harder than normal privilege separation issues. And so I think we'll see more amusing vulnerabilities over time on this. All right. I'm certain we will. And moving to another producer, Apple, uh, there was a tweet posted this week of the key to getting the secure enclave processor on iPhone 11. Apple managed to use the DMCA to take down the tweet. But the problem is obviously that the key got out there. Is this a kind of attack we've seen before on other Apple phones, Nick? Uh, It's a little bit different, and Apple quickly realized it was a mistake and uh, went back on the DMC notice. So what it is, is all iPhones up from the iPhone X and before have a flaw that you can use to corrupt the boot process. And this is an irreparable flaw. And in order to reverse engineer the... uh, the firmware and the like going forward, you then use that to get the symmetric keys that are used to decrypt other stuff. And this was one of those keys. Um, It was basically a way to make reverse engineers have their life easier, but it's not hugely significant from a security standpoint because the root vulnerability is not this key, but the boot process of the uh, phone itself. All right. Well, uh, uh, a couple of reliefs that Plundervolt and this Apple vulnerability aren't uh, aren't as big as we might have thought. One more small item in um, in the Department of Hacking. There was a decision this week by the Eleventh Circuit in Principal Solutions versus Ironshore Indemnity, uh, saying that the insurer, Ironshore Indemnity, was liable for covering 
1.7 million that was sent away by one of these fake boss messages. Somebody received a message saying that for some kind of transaction, uh, $1.7 million needed to be transferred. And that was found by the court to be clearly a fraud within the cover for a fraudulent instruction. So this is a pretty specific issue where we'll see a lot of these issues for cyber coverage. But it's part of a broader story that the, uh, the scope of coverage for uh, cyber insurance, which is really important, is, uh, is evolving. Um, and this is probably one moderately significant decision in that direction. So I want to turn to the Department of uh, Big Technology. You know, Stuart likes to say that uh, over here in Europe, the European authorities like to beat up on big U.S. tech companies. But it's, it's not just the Europeans. It's tough all around. Uh, Amazon has been running into some bad PR, although they say it's just, uh, it's just working the way it says on the tin with their ring doorbell service. <laughs> I take it you don't agree. Nick, well, I was going to ask you, tell me about what Gizmodo's been reporting about uh, data leakage via the Ring service. So there's actually two completely different problems. First is that the API for Ring cameras allows you to map exactly where all of them are. And yes, this isn't a problem if you read the 27 pages of frying print. And then there are the hackers who are breaking into the ring cameras for fun, literally. They think it's humorous to break into the camera that's located in the child's bedroom, watch the child, and then speak stuff through the speaker on the camera. Yeah, the Washington Post reported that, which, of course, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. And Ring responded and said, well, there was no security problem here. It was just somebody who reused stolen credentials. Is there uh, how how good is that Amazon response? Not very, because it sounds like some of the reporting from Motherboard is that the attackers are using brute force tools as well to brute force accounts, which says that Amazon does not have even the most basic rate limits on attempts for these online attacks. And also, truth be told, Amazon should start to think about, well, they see the data as well. They should start actually looking at protecting this better. So Amazon's able to say, legally, we have no obligation. You did read the 27-page software license agreement, uh, and you agreed to it all. Um, have a nice day. But it really is, to my mind, incompetence on their part. They should have been doing a much better job of preventing these attacks in the first place. This, this strikes to me as another example of sort of the, the early day pain of the growth of the Internet of Things sector. You know, about a year ago, we had the distributive denial of service attacks because poorly and poorly patched or unpatchable um, insecure firmware on these devices could be used to launch these attacks. This is another kind of problem where these things are going to need to be thought through in, in a lot more care. Is, is that a sensible way of thinking about it? I would add, however, that Amazon is an old, well-known, well-structured company and that this is basic security 101 kind of things 
that Amazon is just simply neglecting in their new subsidiary. Mm. All right. Well, another couple of uh, quick stories uh, that I'll cover on big tech. Um, this is going to be a big story if it happens. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that the Federal Trade Commission could file suit against Facebook as soon as January, possibly seeking a preliminary injunction restraining interactions among uh, the various Facebook apps, uh, the, the main Facebook service, Messenger, Instagram, WhatsApp. Um, unclear whether that's true, although the Wall Street Journal seemed to believe it is. And if it is true, we'll certainly be talking about it when it happens. And if it is true, it will show that the Federal Trade Commission remains by far the strongest enforcer of privacy uh, privacy law and, and policy in the United States. So and the other one comes from Turkey, uh, where they've just adopted a 7.5% tax on digital services, uh, which is a, a big number, and it takes effect in March, and it has quite broad scope, broader than the tax, the 3.5% tax that was adopted in France and prompted um, the uh, the Trump administration to threaten retaliation. This we're going to see uh, more of. The OECD is talking about ways to unify taxation of digital services, and so being being big tech ain't so easy at the moment. So uh, we'll head south from there towards um, towards the Persian Gulf. Nate, the New York Times is reporting um, some details about. Uh, Iran being very uh, subject to a very big uh, cyber attack targeting banking. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So uh, the information, private information of about 15 million customers was stolen from three large Iranian banks. Uh, the culprits then created a, a channel on Telegram and published the banking info of millions of Iranians uh, Telegram moved relatively swiftly to shut that channel down, um, which apparently prompted the culprits to then start using uh, the bank's customer service capabilities to reach out to these customers and send uh, emails essentially to them, uh, uh, threatening them and, and criticizing the bank. The uh, Minister of Telecommunications in Iran came out and, and uh, announced that this uh, state-sponsored attack, after, after blaming it on insiders originally, he came out and announced that it was uh, a state-sponsored attack. Uh, and you know, one of the interesting things to me, uh, frankly, coming out of this story is uh, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about the increased sophistication of of Iran and North Korea and and other governments in their in their cyber capability at least their cyber attack capabilities one of the things that it seems there's still a delta between the US and a couple of others um, and the rest of the world on is their ability to attribute these types of attacks to to particular states or or private actors um, you know there's there's been some intimation that it might have been the US I obviously have no information on that but just given the nature of of the attack and what was done with the information I'd be a little bit surprised if it were the US they've they've been historically somewhat reluctant to target financial industries and particularly the publication of of people's private information 
in the way it was done here is something that uh, I think would be uh, a, a new tactic by the United States in the cyber realm and, and would be very troubling if they started to go down that road. So um, I've got my fingers crossed, hoping it wasn't them. You say you say there was intimation that it was the United States. Was this the Iranian government intimating or somebody else? Yeah, and it, a little bit the Iranian government and and frankly the the media um, you know talks about how each of these banks was um, a uh, a target of U.S. sanctions previously, and that some of the activities um, were were likely. Uh, I guess the the hack overall was likely. Um, done to to discredit um, the Iranian government and to foment some of the unrest that's taking place there. And different folks have pointed fingers at, at uh, the U.S. and the Israelis and others. Um, but we just don't know a lot at this point about who is actually responsible for this. It strikes me and it's pretty hard to disaggregate the, the the state political policy and the commercial motives here. So it's a commercial attack, but you know that is uh, who knows who's involved, who could financially benefit yeah. while while um, forwarding some state interests. Exactly. So just across the Strait of Hormuz in the UAE, um, it's been reported that Richard Clark, who was the counterterrorism czar. In the um, at the end of the Clinton administration and in the George W. Bush administration, uh, through through the nine eleven attacks, um, was involved in creating a, deeply involved with through his consulting firm and some related people in creating a counterterrorism organization in the UAE with an interesting name. Have you been following that one too, Nate? Yeah, um, you know. It, after he left the White House, uh, shortly after that, Dick Clark created a, a consulting firm called Good Harbor Consulting and lured away a, a number of senior U.S. government officials uh, and, uh, among other things, ended up uh, getting securing a contract from the Emiratis to help them develop a, uh, a, a fairly sophisticated surveillance capability. As, uh, as Clark has, has been asked to comment in response to some of the recent media attention on this, you know, he's, he's uh, said that this was largely an effort that was sanctioned by the U.S. government and focused on creating counterterrorism capabilities. And and while there's there's a good deal of of you know advise and assist uh, efforts that go on around the world by U.S. government or affiliated entities um, to help build foreign governments' capabilities to counter certain threats, uh, it's it's really difficult to to stop those things, particularly in the surveillance world, from spreading into other areas. Um, and it seems that's what was done here. They did get licenses um, from the State Department to engage in this activity. Uh, and, uh, you know, those those contracts are apparently pretty broadly worded. But, you know, while the Emiratis... Uh, human rights practices historically have not been always on the up and up. Um, the State Department is, is in a bit of a... A difficult space when it's approving these kinds of uh, of deals and granting these kinds of licenses because um, it's it's really difficult to cabin them 
over the long term and prevent these kinds of arrangements from morphing into other areas. And that's really what seems to have happened here. Um, this focused on, on counterterrorism at the beginning, but eventually was used as a, a geopolitical tool against the Qataris and, among other things, trying to kill their efforts to secure the World Cup. They targeted uh, FIFA officials in that effort. And, and there's also been separate reporting recently about the Emiratis' use of these capabilities to target journalists and human rights activists and, and things. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the things that we're seeing, not just in the surveillance world, but I think across the board is a great deal of, of media and public scrutiny of the work that Americans and particularly foreign former government officials are doing on behalf of, of foreign governments. Uh, there's been a big uptick in, in FARA enforcement, obviously coming out of the Mueller investigation. Uh, and, and so I think you're likely to see this continue and these kinds of, uh, of both legal and ethical issues that are raised by these activities are, are not likely to go away. So it's a, it's a bit of a cautionary note for those out there who are, who are doing work on behalf of foreign governments. I mean, it strikes me, well, I, I suppose there could be far issues, but it strikes me much more ethical in policy than it is legal. I mean, it sounds like Dick Clark was smart enough to have the licenses he needed. There haven't been any serious allegations of legal wrongdoing here, but it's more about is this the kind of act? Do we want U.S. government expertise to be used in this way? Yeah, I think that's true. I didn't mean to suggest that this particular deal raises far issues. I'm just saying that there there are broader concerns about Americans working on behalf of of foreign governments, um, either in the United States or outside of the United States. I do think that you know there are a, a number of people uh, who were who were asked for comment in response to some of these articles have uh, declined on, uh, among other things, advice of counsel. And I do think that there is, you know, it's hard to tell just how much, but I do think that there is a certain degree of legal um, exposure that some of these people have given the nature of activities that they've been engaged in. Wiretapping, you know, uh, accessing individuals' devices or accounts without authorization. These are things that are, are carefully regulated in a number of jurisdictions around the world. And unless you're really careful about how you're doing that, you may be tripping over um, some legal restrictions. You know, there have been allegations that they were targeting individuals' um, Yahoo uh, accounts, Google accounts, and things like that as part of this effort. And to the extent they're directly involved in some of those activities, even if those individuals are not U.S. persons, to the extent that they're accessing those accounts um, what, that are hosted on U.S. servers, they may be bumping against, up against U.S. legal restrictions. If they're hosted on servers in Europe, they may have other problems um, in in the jurisdictions where that's occurring. So I do think that they sh they need to think very long and hard about how and where they're doing these kinds of things because there are some pretty significant legal risks that are, are associated with these types of activities. Thanks. I guess we'll see whether the other shoe drops. And, you know, fortunately, it hasn't dropped today for me. I think even though I haven't managed to put on Baker Fireworks, I feel that I've survived <laughs> in my first time hosting the Cyril Law podcast. And so with that, I'll turn it back over to Mr. Baker in absentia.
Okay, thanks to Maury uh, Shank for that. Uh, Also, thanks, Nate Jones and Nick Weaver. This has been episode 293 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, Very exciting news. Uh, We made the top 215 in uh, podcasts that, uh, uh, or a website that uh, assembles the top 215 uh, podcasts. So that was kind of nice. Um, I'd sort of like to be in the top 30, but uh, I'll take 215. If you've got comments or suggestions, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow me at Stuart Baker on Twitter, and uh, occasionally I will uh, post the stories that we're going to be covering next week. Uh, uh, And uh, if you get a chance to rate the show, we do appreciate it. uh, And I often read the most entertaining and entertainingly abusive, for that matter, uh, reviews that we get, especially if they are accompanied by five stars. So, Please join us again after the uh, holiday break or actually after the uh, special on uh, FISA uh, mistakes uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 